So I was thinking about the song, It Is Well With My Soul. And I don't know why this didn't dawn on me before, but it just, as we were singing it, it dawned on me. The word does, the, the phrase doesn't say it is well with my life. It says it's well with my soul. There's a big difference. Have you noticed there's a big difference between that? Difference between it is well with my life versus it is well with my soul. And essentially what the writer is saying is my life may be a mess. Some things I can control, some, many things I can't. But you know what? When I have Christ in my life, I have peace in my soul. And even in the midst of struggles and bad news and just who knows what. And maybe you're here today and you will not get anything out of my message. Maybe you get something out of that. I don't know. But I just thought of that and I said, you know what? That's essentially the, the, the crux of that whole song and a, a, a really important part of suffering in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say it'll be well with your life. It says it will be well with your soul. So hang on to that one. So I want to ask a couple questions as we get started. Why doesn't following Christ stick with some people? You know, they're kind of, it seems like they're following Christ, they're a Christian, they're going strong, and then all of a sudden you go, where, where did they go? Have you seen them around? Or why don't some people just get faith in Christ? They just, you try to explain it to them, you're telling them about how you love Christ, maybe your parents, maybe friends, maybe coworkers, and you're describing your faith and they go, well, that's good for you. And they just don't get it. And you just, how do I, how do I get you to understand what I'm trying to explain to you? Or why are so many people caught up in trying to, to, um, work their way to heaven? They're doing their, they're doing their, their, their best. They're working hard. They're going to church. They're following the rules and regulations of whatever church they go to. They're, they're trying to be better than most. They're living a good moral life and they're not going out and killing people and robbing banks and stuff. But, well, our passage is going to reveal and shed some light on some of these questions because it really is the heart of where we're at. And, uh, I think hopefully you'll be encouraged by it. So just a quick things of review. I'm going to assume that that uh, some of you haven't been here uh, the past few weeks. So I want to give you a little review where we're at. We're going through the book of Genesis. Specifically, we're going through the life of Abraham. And in chapter 12 of Genesis, God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, "You're going to be a great nation. You're going to have you're going to have more children than you can count. You're going to have a lot of children." And yet uh, even up to this day, as we look at uh, Genesis uh, 12 or 17, he has no children, none, zip, <laughs> none, you know, none. And, and, and it's been 24 years, 24 years since God has made the promise. And we come now from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis t- chapter 17. We're 24 years down the road and he still does not have a child. Thirteen years since Abraham last heard from God. Thirteen years. And, and by the way, God has said, you're going to have a lot of kids. More than you can count. Twenty-four years ago. Thirteen years ago, he reaffirmed that. Still hasn't yet to see a child. I believe what God is doing is God is waiting until Abraham and Sarah, his wife, are biologically dead. There is absolutely no possibility they could ever have a child. No one would ever believe they would have a child because they were far, far, far beyond having children. 
Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah's young. She's 89. Okay? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, listen, it's over. It, you know, by all conventional standards, it's over. In our passage today, we're going to look at God, as God appears to Abraham and he renews the covenant. Now, if you, if you want, you can turn to Genesis chapter 17. Uh, we're going to be there, and then it's on page 13 of your chair Bible. If, if you uh, want to use this Bible, it's on page 13. Now, I have been using Abraham because I get tired of using Abram. Well, this is the chapter where he changes the name, and he says, you will no longer be Abram, you'll be Abraham. And I'm so thankful for that because nobody ever calls him Abram. They call him Abraham, you know, and they don't call him Sarai. They call her Sarah. So the names are going to get changed, and uh, ultimately for Abraham, and we're going to, uh, I'm really encouraged by that. But there's a couple of things we want to look at. So Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. Let's pick up our text for this weekend, and we'll dive into it. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. A blameless life. I will make a covenant with you by which I can get, I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. There it is again. At this, Abram fell down to the ground. Then God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make with you the father. I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I'm changing your name. I will no longer, you will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham for you will be a father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is an everlasting covenant. I will be I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. A couple things I want to point out from the text. First, he says, I am El Shaddai. God Almighty. Now, why does God say that? Because God basically needs to show Abraham that he is all-powerful, that nothing is impossible for him. So uh, he basically says to Abraham, I, just in case you wanted to know who I am, I'm El Shaddai. I'm, all, I'm, 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 I'm God Almighty, and that means that I am not biologically challenged. And we'll see that he's not. I mean, we're going to see that in Abraham at 99 and Sarah at 89, they're going to be mom and dad for the first time. And that's just stunning. And I believe God does this because He wants everyone to know this was not done naturally. This was done supernaturally. This was a miracle. The second thing we see from this passage is it says, He says, kings will come from you. He tells Abraham that he's going to have descendants uh, that are going to be kings and rulers. And we, we certainly know that he had many. And, you know, just to point out two key uh, kings that uh, came from Abraham, uh, David, King David, probably one of the greatest kings Israel ever had, and another king we call Jesus, who has been called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so here the writer is saying, you will not only have kings, you are, will have the king, you know, ultimately. And then he changes his name. He says, you'll be called Abraham. Now, Abraham meant father of many. So God changes his name, or excuse me, Abram meant father of many. So God changes his name from Abram, father of many, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. (laughs) Okay, so 
you know, in, in our day, that doesn't generally, we've lost what they used to do with names. Names used to have meaning. In a sense, it, it, it was a, an identity. It, it was part of your identity. For instance, you were uh, named Carpenter, right? Or Baker, or Barber, or Dyer, or Smith, or something, you know? And essentially that talked about who you were. You know, you, if you were a Smith, you were a blacksmith. If you were a Carpenter, you were a Carpenter. If you were a Dyer, you dyed, you know, materials and stuff like that. So, can you imagine Abram? People say, what's your name? Abram. Oh, father of many. Uh, where are your kids? Don't have any. It's like a joke, isn't it? And so God even amps it up. He says, now I'm going to call you Abraham, father of many nations. It's like, can you imagine going around? That's like looking at somebody who's really tall and saying, hey, shorty, you know. It's like, come on, that's a joke, right? This can't be real. So Abraham, every time he says his name, it's a reminder that God has made a promise, but it hasn't come through yet. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like God has made some promises? He says he's going to do certain things and you feel like, where are you, God? You know? 24 years, 24 years, 24 years. Then he goes into, now some of you knew knew that this chapter, chapter 17, talks about circumcision. What are you going to do? Is he going to dodge it? No, I'm not going to dodge it. We'll we'll talk about it, all right? So um, the sign of the covenant that God has with Abraham is circumcision. Alright? So let's talk about that. Let's look at uh, verse 23. Jump down. This is on page 13. It says, on that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael. Remember, Ishmael was the son he had with Sarah's slave, uh, Hagar. We talked about that last weekend. And what we said was, what Abraham and Sarah were trying to do was trying to bring the promise of God through the slave woman, through Hagar. And God said, no, it's not going to come through, it's not going to come through Hagar. It's going to come through Sarah. Okay? So on that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and every male in his household, including those born there and those who had been bought. And he circumcised them, cutting off their foreskins. Uh, just as God had told him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. And Ishmael, his son, was 13. Now, circumcision was commonly practiced in many ancient Near East cultures. It was seen as a rite of passage. Now, in Abraham's time, it was a ceremonial ritual. It was kind of a passage into marriage for a young man. So a young man would be circumcised before he was married. And it's that part of, you know, going through puberty and, and that whole transition. It was moving from childhood to adulthood into a time in their lives where they would have children. You know, so it was one of those rites of passage. So God, what does he do? He takes this ancient practice that was uh, practiced all around Abraham and he gave it new meaning. He takes this ritual, which was a rite of passage for a young man, and he applies it to infants. And what do I mean by that? Because in, in the text we looked at, it says that Abraham and all the people around him, all the males around him were circumcised. But that was a, a one-time thing because after that, what, what took place was every infant, every child was circumcised on the eighth day. You read in the New Testament about Jesus, and he was circumcised on the eighth day. So this was every, from now on, every Jewish boy that was ever born was circumcised on the eighth day. So God takes something that was, that was applied to a young man, and he applies it to an infant. Now, circumcision is the sign of the covenant. Uh, God is showing Abraham and his descendants the curse of the covenant. Now, 
covenants are really, just think of a covenant as an agreement. Okay, it's two parties coming together and, and having an agreement with one another. And essentially, we talked a lot about the covenant last week, and we said it was an, an eternal covenant. It was all on God, and, you know, essentially, we talked about all that last weekend. But there was also what we call the blessings of the covenant. And essentially, if you follow and we, you keep your, you keep your uh, end of the deal and I keep my end of the deal, we'll both be blessed, right? But there was also the curse of the covenant. The curse of the covenant came when you made an agreement and with somebody else, and in this case, God, and you didn't keep your part of the agreement. The, the bottom line was you were under the curse of the covenant. And we talked about that. But essentially what he's saying here, what, he, what is being illustrated here is uh, this is the idea where uh, when circumcision takes place, a portion of the foreskin is cut off. And essentially what God is saying here is there's a, there's a curse that will come if you don't keep the covenant. You'll be cut off. You'll be cut off. If you don't keep covenant, you'll be cut off. Now... You think about that, and we, say, we use this phrase all the time. You know, uh, some parents are saying to their 20-ish year old children, um, I'm cutting you off because <laughs> you need to move and you need to leave and you need to get a job and you need, I'm cutting you off. I'm done. You know, I'm not done with you as a son or a daughter, but I'm cutting you off. You need to go out and, you know, and sometimes we cut people off in a sense because we say, you know, you said this, you did this, you're, you're unrepentant, it hurt. And so I'm cutting you off. I, I, I'm cutting you off. And essentially what is going on here is uh, circumcision is the cutting off. And you think about circumcision, and if you've ever been there, uh, when your son has been circumcised, it is painful, it is bloody, it is unpleasant, it is awful, it is terrible. It is, uh, and God is saying... That if you fail to keep covenant, you'll be cut off. You'll be cut off. Now, God has said the covenant was all on him. He said that over and over. And, and when we looked at the, the uh, when God passed between the, the animals that were cut in half, he essentially, he was the only one that passed between the animals. Abraham didn't. And what we said was that the God was saying that the covenant is all on me. And so God is saying, and he says it's an eternal covenant. It will always be there. But he also says, but, you, but if, you, if you break the covenant, you'll be cut off. So, so how does that work? How does that work? How does it work that when God says the covenant is all on him, but yet he says if they break the covenant, they'll be cut off? How does that work? Well, I think this, you know, the, the immediate solution is that when we break the covenant, when the people of Israel broke the covenant, they were cut off in a sense that they, they did experience the curses of the covenant. Anytime you say no to God, right? Anytime you go your own way, life doesn't generally go well, okay? Uh, but it's more than that. There's something bigger than that going on. Uh, the only way that we really can make sense of both sides of the covenant is when we see Jesus. And, and, and here's how we do that. He's the one who perfectly keeps the covenant for us. Um, the Bible over and over says about Jesus, he was without sin. Perfect. Nobody has ever walked on this planet who has not sinned. Jesus is the only one who has never sinned, never broken a law, kept, kept the law perfectly. Perfectly. And so... We can, only make, we can only make sense of keeping the covenant. Jesus kept the covenant perfect for us. But he is also the one who, curses, who suffers the curse of the covenant. Uh, 
Because on the cross, at his greatest time of need, he, 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 he stretches out his arms and he's nailed to a cross and he cries out what? My God, my God, why have you cut me off, forsaken me? You see, what's going on there is that Jesus not only kept the covenant for us, but he took the curse of the covenant for every covenant breaker. So when we put our faith and trust, not in ourselves, not in going to church, not in being good enough, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ on the cross, we realize the covenant has been kept by us through him. We realize that he took the curse of the covenant for us on the cross. And that's why he could say those last words, it is finished. It is finished. So Jesus is the only one who kept the covenant for us, but he's also was cut off instead of us. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he is cosmically cut off from his father. He did that for you and for me. Now, let's take a few minutes and let's answer the question that I raised at the beginning. Why don't people get the gospel? Seems simple enough, doesn't it? It seems simple enough for a little a young a boy or girl to figure out. And as their parents explain the gospel to them, they get it. And the light goes on and their hearts are turned and everything. Why are so many people not in this community trying to work so hard to get to heaven? I mean, if you were to ask them, are you going to go to heaven? I hope so. Why? And they'd say, well, I go to church. I believe in God. I, I'm better than most people. I'm not perfect. I don't, you know, I've, you know I'm, doing, I'm doing pretty good. Look at my resume. Right here it is. Why is that? Will you jump to a passage? Because Paul's going to take circumcision. He's going to apply it to this whole idea of uh, our hearts. Um, Romans chapter 2. This is on page, uh, again, in your chair, Bible, 858. Romans chapter 2, verse 28. Paul says something that's very interesting. We're going to pull a couple of passages together, and we'll draw a, 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 an application for us. Uh, in chapter 2 of Romans, verse 28, Paul says something very significant. It's not just significant. Don't get, don't get lost in this whole idea that he's speaking to Jewish people. Uh, because we are just as regimented, we are just as uh, traditional and following uh, tr- traditions as they are. And notice what he says. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through, notice, the ceremony of circumcision. So what was he saying? He's saying, just because you're a Jew and just because you were circumcised doesn't mean you're in. (laughs) They thought so. And how many people think, I was born in a Christian family and I go to church. I'm in. Paul says, not so. He says, no, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by God's Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. So Paul is using circumcision here in a different way. He's saying that many Jews in his days thought they were okay with God because they were Jewish and because they were circumcised, because they were descendants of Abraham. And he's saying, not so fast. Paul was saying, sorry, physical circumcision is meaningless without faith. Essentially what Paul is saying is, unless your heart's in it, you're not in it. 
He's saying you need to have a circumcised heart. Your heart has to be changed. You know this is true. You know that your children sometimes will do things out of obedience because they have to. Their hearts aren't in it. They're just doing it because they have to. And then other times they do it because they want to. There's all the difference in the world between those two, isn't there? And there are people today who are going to church. They're doing, they're going through the rituals of religion and they're saying, I'm doing it because I have to, because I need to go to heaven and that's my way to get to heaven. Well, how do you get a circumcised heart? There's this great passage in Deuteronomy. I know I'm having you turn, but I'm giving you the pages, so this is not really big. You know, I mean, you can, you know, find it easily. Deuteronomy chapter 30, page 162. The writer here is saying, essentially, there's a day that's coming where God is going to change hearts. He's going to circumcise hearts. He's going to turn everything around. And I want to read you a portion of that passage. This is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul that you may live. And the Lord will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all the commandments that I have commanded you. So the author of Deuteronomy is looking forward to a day when God would give his people a new circumcised heart. The point I want you to see is until your heart changes, until your hearts are circumcised, nothing changes. That's why people, when they hear the gospel, they say, and they don't get it, Nothing changes. That, that, that's the bottom line. With an uncircumcised heart, we'll try our hardest to be good enough, to be acceptable to God. We'll work for our salvation. We'll go to church. We'll follow the rules. We'll do our best so that one day we could stand before God and say, look at all that I've done. You owe me. And, and God's going to say, I don't know you. How in the world could I owe you if I don't even know you? Right? Our passage is clear. Human hard work won't bring a son to Abraham. And and essentially that's what God is saying to Abraham and Sarah. He's saying, Sarah and Abraham, I want to make it so perfectly clear to you that the promise isn't going to come through your effort of having a son, whether it's through a slave woman or whatever. You are going to be so biologically dead, you will never have a son. The only way you'll have a son is you'll have it through a miraculous intervention where God will... Bring this son to you when you are biologically dead. There's going to be a miracle that's going to take place. And the only thing you're going to be able to say is, God intervened in my life to bring this son. It's the only way you'll be able to explain it. It's a miracle. In the same way what Paul is saying, until God intervenes in our individual lives with a miracle by turning our heart, by by taking an uncircumcised heart and circumcising it, by... By opening our eyes and turning our hearts, nothing will change. That's why, that's why there's so many people around you that, that you, you, when you start describing your love for God, your faith, 
What, you know, that you, that this isn't work, this isn't effort, this is a desire, this is something you, this isn't duty, it's desire, it's something I want to do, it's something I love to do, it's something that compels me, it's my North Star, it's my hope, it's my joy, it's my peace, it's my forgiveness, it's everything in my life, and they look at you and they go, that's nice. Hey, you want to go get a hamburger? You know, it's like, did you hear what I just said? Do you get this? And the answer is no, they don't. See, salvation doesn't come to us because we work hard, because we believe in God, because we seek to be better than others. God graciously, miraculously sends His Son, undeserved grace. God was saying to Abraham, I'm going to do a miracle in you and Sarah. You are well past your childbearing age, but you will still have a son of promise. And God is saying to us, I'm going to do a miracle in you. It will not come through human effort or hard work. I'm going to give you a new circumcised heart. And when I give you this new heart, everything will change. Everything will change. See, salvation comes only by grace through faith in the promised Son who get, came and get, kept the covenant for you and took the curse of the covenant for you, being cosmically cut off for you. And he says that, 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 that if you look to him, he will, he will turn your heart. He will... Let's go back to that passage. I'll just summarize it. Deuteronomy 30. Uh, God will change your heart. Then you will, again will obey the Lord and keep all the commands that I'm giving you today. See, see people have the, the train and the, 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 the engine of the train and the cars of the train backwards. They think that I'll do all these good works to be acceptable to God. What they don't realize is, no, first I am acceptable to God and then I do all those good works. Because the first way is I'm doing these so that one day God will accept me. The second way is, no, I'm already accepted. I'm already forgiven. Now, my desire is to do these works. And that's why, you see, in other words, the point I'm making is this. We don't keep the commandments to get a new heart. We get a new heart to keep the commandments. We have a whole new motivation. We have a new desire. We have a new ability. Before we didn't, we, we did it because we had to. Now we do it out of des- a desire. We do it out of love. We do it out of gratitude. We look to the cross. We remember that he, he, he not only kept the covenant for me, but he took the curse of the covenant for me. So when I look to the cross, I'm broken. And I realize that he did this for me. And now my desire, my whole desire, my whole life is, is, is how, how, do, how can I serve you? How can I please you? How can I love you? I don't do it because I'm trying to earn my salvation back or pay you back. I do it just because you are so gracious and good to me. Because my heart has been turned. Why don't people stick with Christianity? Why do they kind of, they hang there and then they're gone? Why is it so many people are working so hard trying to get right with God and do the right thing and to do enough? It's because they don't get the gospel. Do you know there's many people in this community that are going to church this morning? And it's all out of duty. If they didn't have to do it, they could take a pill, they'd take a pill. If there, if there was a way around it, they would find a way around Whatever they... And you say, why are you doing that? They're saying this because when I lay my cards down on the table, I realize I'm going to die one day and I've got to have a plan. This is the best plan I have. I just want to tell you, if that's, that doesn't give me hope. That doesn't give me joy. That doesn't give me peace. That doesn't give me a North Star. 
That doesn't give me a reason to get out of bed in the morning. But knowing that I had somebody who came to earth and kept the covenant perfectly, lived the life I should have lived, and took the curse of the covenant, died the death I should have died, and when I realized that and he turned my heart, and some, I hope many of you are here, I hope most of you, I hope all of you are here this morning, and say, he's turned my heart too. I get what you're saying. We're on the same wavelength. He, my life has never been, we, we heard a testimony this morning about, somebody said, I finally got it. <laughs> The light went on. My heart was turned. Circumcised heart. There it is. Boom. And my life has never been the same and will never be the same. Then you talk to somebody who doesn't get it and you go, the nickel hasn't dropped yet for you. The heart hasn't turned yet for you. You you still have an uncircumcised... I don't say that to them. But it just hasn't happened. And you say, God, turn their hearts circumcise their hearts because when you change their heart everything changes but if the heart never changes then all you really got is a religion religion gets you nowhere final thought till you get a new heart nothing changes but once you get a new heart everything changes would you stand with me let's pray Father, I pray that everyone in this room would have a circumcised heart. I pray that uh, you would turn hearts in this room today. Help us to understand the gospel. Many people in this community, Father, have heard, at least they think, they have heard the gospel. And they probably have. But when we hear the gospel with an uncircumcised heart, when our heart hasn't been turned and we hear the gospel, it's, it's like nothing. But when our hearts are turned, we hear the gospel. It's crazy good. It's just unbelievable. It's like, what? Where has this been? It may be, Father, that somebody right now, you've been speaking to their heart, and they need to pray something like this. Father, I realize that Jesus came and gave his life for me. He kept the covenant perfect. He was without sin. And he lived the life that I should be living that I can't. He also took the curse of the covenant. He was cut off, cosmically cut off by you. Because you can't look on sin. He died the death I should have died. Father, Jesus came and gave his life for me. And now I want to give my life to you. My faith is completely and totally in Jesus Christ. Not in a church not in a tradition, but in you. I pray that you come into my life. And as you begin that transformation process, as you turn my heart, I pray that day by day, I would understand more and more the depth of the gospel and of your love and of your grace and of your mercy for me. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. And Father, if somebody prayed that prayer, I pray that you would just help them tell a friend so that they can, maybe that friend's been praying for them. I don't know. But I know that you, wanna, you want uh, us to go public with our faith. And if we've made that transition, we've stepped across that line of faith, we finally get it. The light's gone on. Our hearts have been turned. We, we certainly want to shout it out to the world. But maybe we should let somebody know. <laughs> 
For the rest of us, Father, thank you for the deep work you're doing in our hearts. We're not there yet. We'll never get there this side of heaven. But little by little, day by day, even in the midst of storms, probably because of the storms, we're becoming more like you. We're finding joy and hope in dark times. We, we're, we're looking to our North Star. We're finding direction and purpose and meaning in our lives that we never found before. And we want other people to have this. So help us to take the gospel. And I don't know how you do that, Father. I don't know how you, you supernaturally use us, but you choose to use us in this whole gospel transformation process. And we just pray that somehow this week you would help us to turn a conversation or to open a door most of all, that you help us to t- help a person, somebody that we know, maybe somebody we don't know, take one step closer to Jesus. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.